Good morning, family. I'm a little disoriented with the new chair settings, so bear with me. Um, awesome. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Well, I cannot express the true and utter privilege it is to be able to address you from the pulpit this morning and serve you. Um, I'm very excited for the topic today. Um, it is on the mark of the church, uh, which we know as the preaching of the word. I, I truly believe it's a very natural topic to actually follow up from our time in Ephesians 2, because it will answer questions that, that kind of arose as our, from our time there, which were like, by what means are the spiritually dead raised to life? Um, or how is the Christian to walk by God's grace in good works that were prepared beforehand? Or perhaps simply the question of how is the Christian sanctified? But first, I would like to begin with a brief recap over the last two weeks. Um, as I said, we've been going through Ephesians, and it's served us as a sort of a, a roadmap of sorts that we have followed along as a family. Uh, but here and there, however, that roadmap has taken, taken us to places where we feel it is only natural to want to turn off the car, get out, and, and camp for a bit. Uh, and we find ourselves on one of those camping trips, if you will, now. To get the most out of Ephesians, our elders have decided to take some time to look at the doctrine of the church and to observe things like what are the marks of a true church and what are the marks of a healthy church? And also, how does Redemption Hill match up in all of this? Mike took the first week with the question of who is the church? And it's important to notice it was not what is the church, but who is the church, where we found that the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones from the world for Christ. Brian then took the second week and he answered the question of who leads the church? Uh, the question that Levi answered, which is, of course, God leads the church. Christ is our head, but in his providence, he is appointed two offices in the church, the office of elder as our under-shepherd, under and also that of our deacons. Today, we look at another mark of the church, and that mark is known as the preaching of the word. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. Here, Luke, in writing the book of Acts, gives us a certain list, right in Acts chapter 2, certain marks that the marks of the church of God has. The first one that he lists is that the church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, which was the preaching of the word of God. Now, they did not yet have the New Testament but they had seen what Christ had accomplished. They had seen the gospel before their very eyes, and so they preached the gospel, and they used the Old Testament to show how Christ was the fulfillment of it all. A great example of this comes with Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he goes and he preaches the gospel to the masses while also mixing in the prophets to bolster his message, to show that he did not just make this up. This isn't new. This was foretold. In the Reformation, when the Reformers were trying to answer the crucial question of what is the marks of the true church, the very first one they could all agree on was that it had to be the preaching of God's word. Before anything else, later came the sacraments rightly administered, 
And then after that, we finally settled on church discipline. But the first mark was the preaching of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, it says, I charge you, Paul writing to Timothy here, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and extort with complete patience and teaching. Today, by God's grace, we seek to more fully understand this call that is given to our teachers and our elders. Uh, Both our elders and those of us who they call to step in from time to time. And I pray that upon leaving here today, you all know better of what preaching exactly is. What we are to expect from preaching. And also what the best methods of preaching are. While we will be drawing from several texts today, I want you all to have this in mind from the latter portion of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus makes the promise that says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Christ has promised in his word to build the church. And he has promised that she shall overcome all hellfire. It is worth noting from the outset that the command to preach God's word to those who are specially called for this labor is not merely an ordinance to follow. It is not merely a command to keep because it pleases God, though that would be enough reason to do it. It is also, in fact, what is known as a means of grace. This Wednesday, at a Bible study I lead, um, we engaged on this topic a bit, and I found, uh, as suspected, that most had not heard this phrase before coming to this church. Um, But we throw this phrase around quite often here at Redemption Hill, and I'm not really sure, at least in my time being here, if we've ever taken the time to clearly articulate and define what we mean by that phrase, by means of grace. Uh, and so I'd like to define it from the get-go, because understanding um, will be needed to most clearly understand this sermon. Louis Burkhoff defines the means of grace, which are the word preached, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, as well as debatably some others, as objective channels which Christ has instituted in the church and to which he ordinarily binds himself in the communication of his grace. And so just as we use the term a means to an end um, in, in, in an effort to communicate a method to get a desired result, we also use the term a means of grace to articulate our belief that God uses particular methods to administer certain special grace for our sanctification, for greater assurance and also for the strengthening of our faith. Again, in Matthew 16, 18, we see Christ speak the church into formal existence. He claims he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I find that preaching of the word is a means to how that is accomplished. It's an extremely ordinary thing. 
but it, ex- it accomplishes extraordinary feats. And my intention and hope is that it becomes very clear as we go on. Take Martin Luther's words, for example, who upon the end of his life was asked, Luther, how did you accomplish so much in one life? He replied, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. And so Luther here claims, he claims it was not him on that fateful day of the October 31st, 500 years ago. It was not him at the Diet of Worms. It was not him at any point in his life that shook the church from Rome. Rather, it was simply the preaching of the word of God. The word overcame Rome. Not Martin Luther, not John Calvin, not any other reformer. The word. From what is known as the golden age of preaching, the Puritan Richard Sibbs says, Preaching is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. I pray that God works through this sermon so that we as a people may join these men in such wonderful and lofty thoughts of preaching. It is only natural when considering uh, preaching, though, the word preached, that we should take some time to consider the word written. What is this thing we call the Bible? What are the holy scriptures that Christians refer to all the time? Uh, What exactly is this? What is our belief about it? For this, I want to look at some of the uh, historical catechisms and confessions to clearly articulate the orthodox view of what exactly the Bible is. In the very first part of the very first chapter of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, it states, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It goes on and says, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of that truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. And so what this says in times past, God revealed himself to men. He condescended and revealed himself. And for keeping that revelation secure, it was committed unto writing, passed down through the ages of the church. Perhaps a simple way to say it is church How does God reveal himself? By nature and through his word. That's right. Which is the Bible. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, the very first question of it, probably one of the most famous catechism questions there is, 
is what is the chief and highest end of man, with the answer being man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. The fifth question of that catechism is what do the scriptures principally teach? And with the answer being what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so if you put these two together, the catechism is asserting that the Bible tells us the very meaning of life, which is to glorify God and to enjoy enjoy Him forever. And we know this because it tells us what to believe concerning God and what our duties are as creature to creator. And so Scripture is God's Word, written down through men, and this is frankly true, whether you like it or not, whether you're a Christian or not. This is God's Word. But there is also, the Word takes on a special characteristic to those who are in the church, to those who are saved. Remember, we are, as Mike showed us, the called out ones for Christ, the ecclesia, the members of the kingdom of God. And that means we find ourselves in the covenant of grace. A few weeks back in the Nicene Creed, I sought to explain in five minutes the kingdom of God through a covenantal approach, um, stating that the new covenant was a sort of governing document uh, for the kingdom of God in, in certain aspects similar to how our constitution is a governing document for our country. What this then means is the Bible contains covenantal documents. The Old Covenant giving us the Old Testament, and the New Covenant giving us the New Testament. So not only is God's word to us, not only is this God's word to us, this is God's articulation of his covenant with us. The Old points the New with types, shadows, and promises, and the New revealing substance, the antitype, and fulfillment and implications of the revealed gospel in Christ. So this is not just the word of God for us. This is the book, the collection of writings that articulates the covenant between God and his children, his citizens of his kingdom. And is it not entirely natural for citizens to know their relationship to their king? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think it's worth noting how similar this passage is to 2 Timothy 4, 2, which says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I think Paul is making the case here that preaching is the natural outflow of a high view of Scripture. Knowing this is God's Word, knowing this reveals the meaning of life, knowing this informs us of our covenant, knowing this is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, has implications. To put it this way, if the church sees the word as breathed out by God, 
she will no doubt exhale it from her pulpit week by week by week by week. And this is how the church will be complete. This is how we will grow, both in number and in sanctification. There are other means to how this happens. You have community, uh, service, um, things of that nature. But all of that is totally and wholly influenced by the preaching we hear every Lord's Day when we gather. As some of you maybe, uh, maybe know, maybe not, um, I come from a family that's been in the seafood industry for literally over 100 years. Um, something I tell my customers when they come in, they ask me questions about the fish, is that when it comes to fish, they are what they eat. Um, what they eat determines their entire character uh, in terms of flavor profile. Um, I would assert that perhaps a similar, a similar thing can be said of Christians. We are what we eat. We, and we must feed then on solid preaching often to be what we are called to be for God's glory. It's entirely central. In fact, I would even assert that you can more or less know much about a congregation's people simply by going and listening to their pastor's sermon. Simply by looking at what they eat. You will know what they care about, what they unite around, what drives them. It will become extremely apparent upon listening to their sermons if they unite around the gospel in Christ, as the church should, or if they have erected false idols to gather around in mere worldly, superficial unity. Family, let me ask you, how, is, how important is it that you eat? Pretty important. Husbands, how important is it that you feed your wife, that you make sure there is food on the table for her? Utmost importance, right? Parents, how about feeding your children? Would you be a good parent if you do not feed your children? I see a lot of kids shaking their heads like they need to feed us. <laughs> Is it not more important to ensure that we and they are feasting on God's word on a regular basis? In Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you remember, Christ echoes this in his temptations in the wilderness. And yet we make a habit of feasting and feeding on idols over the word. We know these idols, actually. We know them well. Many of them actually start from entirely good intentions. I was reading a brother's take on a, a, a university group the other day, for example. It was a Christian group that is the largest in the entire college. But he claimed they unite not around the word, but rather around community. Community is a great thing, but that's their focus. In fact, he said they cannot even articulate the gospel they claim saves them. Rather, they find the gospel to just be community. 
They are what they eat. And let me tell you, they are many times larger than most churches here in this city. And it's because of their bait, if you will. It's sweet. It's appealing to man's natural tendencies. But it lacks any and all nutrition and substance. They essentially have plenty of ice cream, and the crowds are going to gather for that. But they lack any true meat. But one has to ask, who, who, who am I? Who, who are we to say that is error? Who are we to judge? Shouldn't it be that we just find what works for us, what makes our church grow, and, and whatever we find, that's what we do? Shouldn't we just go with what works? Because, hey, we got way more people than you guys. We must be doing something right. Well, in truth, it would be, if not for this one fact, and that is that the Bible is God's word. And you best believe that the creator has reign over what the creature does in his church. We can discern, we can go to God's word, and we can know what should be and what should not be, both in what the Bible explicitly states and in what the good and necessary consequences are of its teaching. In 2 Timothy, before Paul is led to slaughter before Rome, he tells Timothy, I charge you with one thing, one thing to this young pastor of a church. He says, one thing, preach the word. He goes on to say, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And this is why it is often considered the preaching of the word as the first mark of the church. Because from this mark, every other mark is affected. And you will have from this mark either a church of Christ or as the Reformed Confessions call it, a synagogue of Satan. So what is preaching? If you remember the last time I was here, I told a story of a little girl I had met here um, who was visiting, and I asked her what she thought of Mike. <laughs> to which she replied, she said, I like his beard, but when he's up front, he yells and he cries entirely too much. She found preaching to be a, a pretty humorous affair. And, and while I take, while I find her humorous, the truth is most people probably have a similar take on the, on the whole practice. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For that preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And so to the world, preaching is foolish. It's, it's, to them, it's a man getting up before all you people uh, once a week and, and giving a monologue. And, and that's not how uh, we seek to uh, our people to join our, our clubs or our groups or whatever. We don't say, come to our club. Uh, we give hour-long speeches, and we tell you you're a sinner, and sometimes we make you cry. Do you want to join? Sign up now. No, that's, that's not our way. 
But Paul says in Romans 1, 15 through 16, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also that are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul claims that preaching, while found to be foolish by the world, is the power of God unto salvation in Romans, and is the power of God in Corinthians. And so he is not ashamed. Let the world think he's a fool. Call him a madman, close minded, lock him up, who cares? He knows that through the foolishness of preaching, men are saved. And so he is eager to take part in the practice. And why? Is Paul eager to just give his own message? No. He's eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the gospel of Paul, not the gospel of Peter, not the gospel of Apollos, but of Christ. The Puritan John Preston said preaching is a public interpretation or dividing of the word performed by an ambassador or minister who speaks to the people instead of God in the name of Christ. Wow. That's heavy. That's a heavy burden. Men who preach and rightly divide the word are speaking on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords to his people. Because of this, I would think twice about any preacher who approaches the pulpit without a fair degree of humility and trembling. They are speaking on behalf of God. God. Would you be intimidated to speak on behalf of the governor? How about the president? How about a king calls you up and says, you will speak on my behalf. Go. How about the king of kings and lord of lords? In preaching, men speak for God. And when men speak on behalf of God, who are you not to listen For preaching is not the preacher's message. It is an echo of our monarch, an explanation of his holy word to the sinners and to the saints with an aim of opening men's hearts in Acts 16, 14. Begetting faith in Romans 10, 14. Giving the Holy Spirit Acts 10.44, imparting childlike fear of God, Acts 13.16, trembling and humbling proud hearts, Isaiah 66.2, and speaking via the Spirit to the churches, all of which can perhaps be summed up by an echo that has the view of altering mindsets and desires to either convert or sanctify, to build the church, or keep the gates of hell from overtaking her.
God's word does what is impossible for man. We know this from the beginning. In Genesis, God creates everything through his word, and this sets the tone for the entire Bible. God creates by his word, he forms the church by his word, and he sanctifies us by his word. He leads us beside those still waters. He leads us to his word to graze. By the rod and staff of his word, he keeps our path straight. We don't need to fear in the valley of shadow of death. We have the word of God. We just wrapped up Ephesians 2, where we found that all before Christ are wretched and vile and the walking dead in rebellion to God. It would logically follow then that for the building of the church, the more adding of members uh, to, to to the fold, this would require that God must act to raise the dead to life. But one has to wonder, what means does he use? Do we, do, do we simply go walking around through our days and all of a sudden, I'm a Christian now. God raised me from the dead. I'm just, I don't know what happened. I got to go to church now. No one's ever spoken to me about this. No one's ever talked to me about this. I just believe that's it. No, we don't. In Ezekiel 37, God shows us how the dead are raised. God comes to the prophets, and Scripture says, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God's word brings life. The preaching of God's word brings the dead from the grave. The reformed do not hold that we preach in graveyards as if we alone can raise them. That is something only God can do. But he uses means and he uses preaching. John Calvin claimed that there are, in fact, two ministers required in preaching. The external minister, who holds forth the vocal word and is received by the ears, as well as the internal minister, who is the Holy Spirit, and who truly communicates the thing proclaimed, which is Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit raised Christ, so does he raise men from their spiritual graves and he binds his grace to the word the preacher proclaims on behalf of God. Preaching builds the church 
by literally raising the dead to life, the spiritually dead. And preaching also saves the believer. I'll say that again. Preaching saves the already believing. It keeps the gates of hell from overcoming. It keeps death at bay. It provides a defense and an offense against what comes our way. To clarify on this, 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16 says, Paul talking again to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so Paul says this gift, this gift Timothy has been given by God, this gift all preachers are given by God, will save both him and those who hear it. But what does that mean? How can Timothy be saved by preaching if he's already saved? It'd be kind of weird if we have someone who's not saved preaching God's word to people to be saved. That, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, there'd be some conflict of interests there. Um, and he says that his listeners, his audience of Christians, will also be saved by his preaching. Again, what, what does that mean? Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that we are, in fact, saved every day. Because every day we are being sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of God, sculpted to that image. We have been saved already, those of us who believe, from the penalty of sin, meaning that we have been justified. We have declared righteous. We are being saved every day from the power of sin in our lives, meaning that we are being sanctified. And one day that Mike spoke about in the creed that we look forward to with great expectation, one day we will be saved from the complete and utter presence of sin on the day we are glorified. And so preaching, Paul tells Timothy, is a way in which he and his listeners will be saved. It is, and since they are already Christians, we know he means here that they will be saved through the preaching of the word. What that means is they will be sanctified by the preaching of the word, as will Timothy as he preaches the word. As Mike showed us, God started at creation by creating a family that would multiply. And he did this by his word, speaking us into existence. And then at recreation with Christ, 
God created another family, the church, and he commanded her to multiply through discipling. Preaching God's word builds the church by raising the dead to life. And it keeps the gates of hell from her door by discipling her and sanctifying her. It saves us in two senses. And so preaching is the mark, the crucial mark, the first mark of a true church. It forms the church. It shapes the church. And it is a God-ordained means to save the church. But what is the best way to preach? You take 50 different preachers and get 50 different styles of preaching. So what is the mark of a healthy church in regards to preaching? Now, I understand this may be quite an odd place for me to go because this is my second sermon. <laughs> but though I am a mere infant in this world, I do believe firmly that based off what Scripture is and based off what Scripture does, that will lead us to one way of preaching that stands above all the rest. And that type is expositional preaching. I want to, from the gates, just so we are clear, say I am not knocking topical. In fact, this sermon is a topical sermon. I would kick the stool from under me if I did so. Topical sermons can be edifying but they are not what is to be the norm. Camping, like I said earlier, is not the norm for us. We're following the roadmap. The norm should be what's known as expository or expositional preaching. Mark Dever of Nine Marks, and we have a lot of Nine Marks uh, books in the back, I believe, the resource table, if you guys are interested in, in reading more of his work. Um, he says the first mark of the healthy church, the first mark, the first mark of a true church was preaching. The first mark of a healthy church is, he says, expositional preaching. It is not, the, it is not only the first mark. It is far and away the most important of them all. He says, because if you get this one right, all the others follow. He says this is the crucial mark, expositional preaching. Now, expository preaching is not just verse by verse, this means this, this means that, okay, we're done. It's when a preacher takes the church through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and then allows the passage to shape the message, rather than the sermon shaping the passage. Brian Chappell, from his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, defines it as 
a message whose structure and thoughts are derived from the biblical text that covers the scope of the text and that explains the features and context of the text in order to disclose the enduring principles for faithful thinking, living, and worship intended by the Spirit who inspired the text. In topical preaching, what we do is we have a subject uh, in mind. We have a point we need to make. And so then we go and we seek to find verses to back up that point. In expository preaching, however, we gather a point from the passage and then we delve into that point. And this is something we do almost every week here at Redemption Hill. Biblical exposition wraps the preacher in the congregation. It wraps them together to the only source of true spiritual change. If preaching is to be the center of our gatherings on the Lord's day, the word must be central in the preaching. The expository preacher is the one who takes on the task to open the Bible and dare to say, I will explain to you what this passage means, and I will reprove you from it, and I will exhort you from it, and I will encourage you from it, and I will rebuke you from it. Because, family, I have no better word for you than God's word. Again, it's like a roadmap. And if this roadmap is given by God, does it not make proper sense to trust His direction? To go to the topics He brings up, how He brings them up, when He brings them up, what order He brings them up in. Tim Keller writes, expository preaching should provide the main diet. Again, we are what we eat. Should provide the main diet of preaching for a Christian community. It is the best method for displaying and conveying your convictions that the whole Bible is true. This approach testifies that you believe every part of the Bible to be God's word, not just particular themes and not just the parts you feel comfortable agreeing with. So expository preaching does not hide in comfort or in waters we find shallow enough for, all, for us all just to wade in our whole lives. Rather, it takes us into all manners of doctrine. It forces us to come to terms with all Scripture together as a family. It puts to death the proof text beliefs of judge not. That's it. No one can judge. Only God can judge me. Judge not that are entirely rampant today due to lazy reading and lazy preaching. And it forces us into the sometimes brutal land of context instead of proof text. Brian showed us how the head of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church was Christ last week. 
we show this to be true with expositional preaching. Because if all we ever do is topical, we will always be limited to what our teachers already know. We will, in theory, hold to Christ being our head and the one we follow. But in reality and practice, the head of our church will be our pastor. We will merely follow him. We will place him on a pedestal like a 21st century golden calf. And we will hang literally on his every word because we will equivocate his word with God's. We will hold that there is nothing higher than our pastor's word. And we will never be in the position where God is teaching us more and more week by week, where the pastor is having his sermons and his preparation first preached to him by the Holy Spirit, shattering his heart so that when he comes in here, he has a fire for the majesty of the Word of God. No. We will merely have another man-centered club rather than an ecclesia, a gathering of the called-out ones for Christ. A last word on this point. One that is perhaps grim, but one that I felt necessary to make. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. A church that follows a man dies with that man. A church that follows God and lives on his word will never perish. We can always have expositors for they need not be well-worded nor charismatic. For God's word when faithfully preached never returns void. Through the foolishness of preaching, men are saved. And so the mark of a true church is the preaching of the word. And this is a sort of skeleton animated, similar to the, uh, the imagery in the beginning of Ezekiel 37, these bones walking. And the mark of a healthy church is expository preaching. And this is the flesh, this is the blood, this is the organs of the church. This is what gives her her features. And when God's word is truly held as God's word, not a mere maybe partner in crime um, with man's notions, or worse, something we simply pay lip service to when we raise our Bibles and we say we are what it says we are. And then we go on to hearing about the law of attraction with Christ's words sprinkled in there to satisfy critics. And so now we come to a point of a heart check on this church, on Redemption Hill. Are we a true church? Are we a healthy church? 
there are a few areas I think we should look at. First, frankly, we are entirely beyond blessed in regards to the preaching we have here from our elders. They are extremely gifted. I still remember to this day, we were back in, in that back room, the first Sunday I came here. I was literally overwhelmed. I could not stop texting my uncle here about it. <laughs> I was beside myself by how absolutely solid the preaching was. And the proof of that was is I still remember where we were and what we were preaching on. It was the Olivet Discourse from Luke. And I dare say I learned more in that one sermon than I had learned in any sermon in my life. However, we must remember that our beloved elders are fallible. And our teachers, who fill in from time to time, are fallible. And while they are men of God, they are still merely men. Teachers, the Bible says, will be held to a higher standard. And our elders, when their lives are over, will be called to give an account of their caring for us. And much of that account will be on how did you preach to them? How did you preach the sheep that I gave you? Church, we should strive to bear that burden with them. That should they ever falter or fall into error, we will be there. Not to attack, but to go to them humbly. Because we love God, we love His Word. And we love them. And perhaps we will find that we were actually the ones who were wrong. Perhaps it will merely be a nuance. Perhaps they indeed will be wrong. And they will reform. And by you graciously going to them, they will know you love them. And that you share in their burdens. Second point, are we listening? Are we listening to our sermons? Do we recognize that this is God speaking to us through a channel? Watson, in his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, says, when we come to the word preached, we come to a matter of the highest importance. Therefore, we should stir up ourselves and hear with the greatest devotion. Do you share this stance? Do you pay attention? Or do you daydream while the king addresses you through his servant? A third point. As we are getting good and solid preaching, and often, most often, expositional preaching, the question then turns on us and asks, 
Is it affecting our church and our daily lives? Is the Spirit working through this means of grace to conform us as a whole and as individuals to Christ? Do our lives reflect our preaching? Are we what we eat? Or are we not? And if we're not, something is very wrong. And if you find yourself there, perhaps even this morning, go to your elders. Go to your family here for repentance, for guidance, and for love, and a pointing back to the cross. Last point on this section I will make will be an exhortation to our health. Church, we cannot all pray to changing our preaching or for pushing for our preachers to change their preaching for anything less than it does not match up to the Word of God. Many churches will change their message because it does not fill the pews as they would hope. Christ has promised us the preaching of the word will form the church. Christ has made it explicitly clear, but also it will drive many away. But our aim is not to fill up these chairs with as many people as we can, though we, of course, rejoice and are overjoyed every time we have a new family member added to our fold here at Redemption Hill. But our aim is not foremost to get more people through those doors. It is rather to preach the gospel. And the implication of that is those who love the Lord will come and those being led here will stay. Or those who perhaps are not believers but who come and share this Lord's Day with us will believe. Praise God. On closing and with a recap, I would like to give a story of Robert the Bruce and King James the Sixth. Uh, that's the King James from the King James Bible uh, to give you a little bit of familiarity. Um, you may also be familiar with this name if you are a fan of one of my favorite movies, which is Braveheart. Um, Robert the Bruce, who had a descendant who went on to be a pastor and a preacher who shared the same name. This is a story of him preaching to King James as recorded by John D. Payne. It says, One Lord's Day, as Robert the Bruce ascended the elevated pulpit in St. Giles Kirk in Edinburgh, King James the Sixth 
was comfortably perched in his royal gallery, overlooking the congregation from the rear. The relationship between Bruce and the steward king, though once amicable, became strained due to Bruce's unwillingness to negotiate the truth in light of James' unscrupulous politics, especially as it concerned the newly established Presbyterian Church of Scotland. On this particular Sunday, this particular Lord's Day, after Bruce commenced his sermon, the king showed his contempt for the Bruce by carrying on a loud and impudent conversation with his courtiers. Bruce paused for a moment, and the king quieted down. When Bruce began preaching again, however, the king continued his ill-mannered conversation. After this took place a third time, the fiery Scottish preacher looked up to the royal gallery and declared, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. The lion roars in the preaching of his word, in the forming his church, and protecting her from the gates of hellfire, sanctifying her to overcome sin and doubt and despair and misery, and bolstering her faith and assurance that she is his. We must esteem it for what it is. We must hold it central before community, before service, our gathering on the Lord's day for the worship of God must find its focus on the true and right expositional preaching of the word. This means of grace that God has ordained to raise the dead from their spiritual graves, to break us down and shine a light on our sin, to draw our eyes outside of ourselves and onto the loving arms of our Lord. God, may our preaching here at Redemption Hill always find itself dressed before the mirror of God's word and not the fancies or imaginations of men to hold the preaching which is central will be completely wrapped in the inspired writings let our church not follow wisdom of men who are here for a time and then return to the dust but let us follow God's word which can never be stripped from his church. For those here who are perhaps looking for a church, or perhaps even to those who will listen to this online, wherever you are, this is what to look for. 
This is what to look for in a church. The music can be old hymns. It can be modern worship. It could even be exclusively psalms. The people there can be warm or perhaps more reserved. They can have fold-out chairs and meets in a rented area. Or they can have the most massive church you've ever seen with pews you could recline on for days. None of that matters in comparison to the answer to the question, do they faithfully preach the word of God? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the matchless name of Christ. And I pray that our time here together as a family hallows your name above all. The word has gone out, Father. The lion has roared, though through a fallible and unworthy vessel. May we count not in my articulation or in any pastor's or preacher's articulation, but in the power that is in the word of God that forms the church, that builds the church, that raises the dead, that sanctifies us, corrects us, exhorts us, reproves us, encourages us, and rebukes us. I pray this word clarifies this family's idea of what preaching is and what exactly is happening when a man stands into the channel of the pulpit. I ask now that you have drawn us out of ourselves by your word. May you draw us into doxology and draw us to partake in the Lord's Supper. It is in Christ's name I pray.